Each new challenge also provides a new opportunity for us to reinvent the industry and reconsider ways in which we've done things in the past. This is why the registry continues to provide industry insights through personal interviews with the leaders who are shaping real estate each and every day. By subscribing to our podcast, you are helping us in our work, and we will continue to deliver programming such as the one you're about to hear. Please click the subscribe button and let your friends and colleagues know about us. It will help you and the industry stay ahead of the game. Today's conversation takes us across the architecture industry in the Bay Area, and we sit down with three designers who are working really hard to enable diversity and inclusion within their organizations around the industry. Julia Weatherspoon is an architectural designer at Smith Group and current president of the San Francisco chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects, SFNOMA, with a mission to create more inclusive spaces with design. Her projects range from workplace, commercial interiors, aviation, community and civic design, and now higher education. Julia holds a Bachelor's of Architecture from the University of Arizona. Hao Ko is a managing director, principal, and architect at Gensler's San Francisco office. His internationally recognized projects include the tower at PNC Plaza and NVIDIA headquarters. He's an alumnus of UC Berkeley and a Harvard University Graduate School of Design. Lisa Chilmondale is a principal and architect at Gensler San Francisco office. Currently, she's the project manager and senior architect for the design and execution of related's 240-acre, 10-plus million square foot mixed-use development in Santa Clara. Prior to joining the San Francisco office, Lisa's career at Gensler included experience in London, Doha, and Abu Dhabi. Lisa is an alumnus of Cornell University and holds a Master of Arts degree in History and Theory of Architecture from the Architectural Association. Lisa and Howe are active leaders on Gensler's regional and firm-wide global race and diversity committees. Hi, guys. Good to see everyone. How's everybody doing? Doing great. Happy it's Friday. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Happy it's Friday. Thank you for joining us. I'm very excited to have a, this conversation with you all. And just by way of introduction, so our audience knows who we're talking with, would you guys mind giving us, you know, your name, the entity you're working for, and just a little bit about, you know, your yourself, just as an intro? So Lisa Chumley, I am a principal at Gensler here in San Francisco. It's, I've been against it for 12 years. This is my fourth office. I started in London, lived in the Gulf and Doha and then Abu Dhabi, and then now I'm here. I am an architect by training and not originally from here, originally from Guyana, actually. And I, uh, of late, have worked on large-scale mixed-use projects and doing that here, too. Hi, everyone. I'm Julia Weatherspoon, and I'm actually a California native, so <laughs> you'll probably get that a little bit in how I'm kind of speaking today, but I am the current president for National Organization of Minority Architects, the San Francisco chapter Bay in the Pier in the Bay Area. And I also am a project architect at Smith Group here in San Francisco in the higher ed studio. Excellent. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Hao Ko. Like uh, Lisa, I'm also an architect. I'm also at Gensler. Um, I'm also principal and managing director of the office here in San Francisco. And like Julia, I'm also from California. I was going to say, not as uh, from an exotic location as Lisa, but um, it grew up here in California and very proud of it. Excellent. So how Lisa and Julia, you guys 
are working together, obviously not just as colleagues in this industry, but your two organizations um, have also joined forces to work together to you know raise awareness on some other things. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe kind of how that collaboration began and how it evolved into where it is today. So I guess neither have nor I said that uh, the other hats that we wear are part of uh, some race and diversity efforts at Gensler. So we, um, at the firm-wide level, have a committee called the Gensler Global Race and Diversity Committee. And then we have effectively a parallel level of that at the regional level. And so Howe and I are also the kind of co-leaders of that in the Northwest region, which includes San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver. And so that's kind of a recent, uh, let's say, compilation, but actually Gensler and Noma have a long-standing relationship and partnership. Uh, we're actually lucky enough that the current president of NOMA is actually a Gensler employee. Shout out to Jason Pugh on the, on this podcast. He's in our Chicago office. So it's through that I've been a member of NOMA for a long time. And so actually it's through NOMA and our long-time connection. And then now how and I doing the newest committees that we kind of come together. We're actually in the middle of planning a kind of mixer. I know Julia's working with some of our colleagues that that's going to effectively happen over the next few months to kind of periodic engagement between all of the Gensler offices and kind of NOMA members in San Francisco. And I think we're even branching into NOMA Northwest, I think, right, Julia? Correct. And just to piggyback off of what Lisa is saying, um, just kind of jumping back, you know, NOMA, um, National Organization of Minority Architects, was founded in 1971. So we're coming up on our 50-year anniversary. And nationwide, you know, the mission is to create more inclusive spaces, more equitable practice. So we kind of are that haven for people in the design, architecture and design industry. And the equity, diversity, and inclusion platform and initiative is particularly, you know, ingrained and embedded in what we do. And so we want to make sure that we're providing those resources um, to our members. Our past president, Kimberly Kimberly Dowdell, she started a platform called Access Leadership and Legacy. And through that initiative, she started something called the President's Circle, which is, you know, a collection of large firms and medium-sized firms or any size firm, really, to really have a commitment to this initiative. And within that circle, you know, making sure that we have concerted efforts towards different initiatives that fall under that umbrella. And Gensler has always been such a huge champion and partner um, throughout the years in that. And then as uh, Lisa mentioned, Jason Pugh is now the current uh, president of NOMA National. And we're kind of pushing forward with these same initiatives through his Elevate, Educate, and Empower initiative. So we're moving forward in that way. And Julia, how long have you personally been involved with your organization in the in the Bay Area? Tell us a little bit about you know how how distinct is what you guys do in the Bay Area from kind of the national platform, if you will. So I've been a part of the NOMA, the SF NOMA eboard for close to six years now. And I've seen it grow just locally and in the Western region pretty rapidly in the last six years. Um, we were founded in Detroit nationally, so you know, naturally. You know, there's a lot more members on the East Coast and the Midwest and building out the Western region is something that's really important to us as well to have a robust membership. But from the nationwide initiatives, we like to kind of adopt those and adapt it to what the local needs are of the the specific regions that we're working with. Because I think regionally, the culture is different in terms of built environment. The culture is different in terms of workplace and resources that people are needing. So in that capacity, 
we do adopt the overall initiatives and frameworks, but then we kind of narrow it down into the things that we need locally. Yeah, excellent. I'd love to ask you guys to also provide, maybe there's a personal story, maybe there's something that you know personally connects you to this mission. I think there always is. Otherwise, I don't think you're just doing this for the sake of doing it, right? How maybe I'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about you know what what why this resonates for you personally and kind of how this involvement through you know Gensler you know matters. It really starts with just who I am, you know. It just to let you know who I am, I'm I'm a I'm a son of immigrants, you know, and I think it really starts there. And uh, uh, you know, Lisa and I actually had a bit of a, a shared kind of personal tragedy that we both lost our um, fathers at the same time a few years ago, and through that. I came across a photo of when he came to America for the first time. It was his first photo, and he actually came from Hong Kong by boat. And he, it was a photo of him with the backdrop of the Golden Gate behind him. And he always spoke of the city in such a way that it was all about hope, right? It was that immigrant dream of coming to America for a new start and uh, a second chance. You know, I think being of Chinese descent, too, Probably what's been embedded in me too is that it's um, there's an understanding that each generation it's you're responsible to make progress, and you know so I think when it comes to trying to live up or make the dream that we have of that quote unquote American dream happen, it's something that does take generations, and that's the part that probably got instilled in me personally in terms of my own kind of conviction towards it, but perhaps my even my own responsibility towards trying to enact this change. Yeah, that's very interesting. Lisa, how about you? It probably starts with the, I was originally a member of NOMAS when I was a student. So just out my age here that I was an undergraduate student in the 90s. And so um, I was a member then, that's maybe my first connection to. And I, I know that in college, it was really important for all of the students of color to form a community. And so NOMAS was an important part of that, I think. And then I lived abroad for a number of years. And then four years ago, Jason said, hey, Lisa, come and do a, do a talk at a, at a conference. And I came and I did it. And what was powerful is I was reminded of the power of the community of NOMA. And that was before I moved back. I have to say that part of that experience was a reminder of like, I really loved being in that community and connecting to that. I've never not been aware that I'm the, you know, often the only black woman in the room, often the only woman, but certainly the only black woman. And so it's always been important to, to understand like who came before me, how am I nurturing people after me? And so it's super personal, I think, like how said as well. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And Julia, how about for you? Echo what Lisa is saying. I, I think if I want to bring it back to childhood when I first was interested in architecture, you know, a little, you know, freshman in high school, you know, I was just like a lover of design. And when you're there and you're, you know, trying to pursue architecture and design through college and then, you know, professional practice, in the beginning, you're not really aware of all the external factors that matter um, when you're trying to design. So yes, always being the only woman usually and most certainly always the only black woman has always been kind of the ecosystem that you have to kind of like work through. Um, And I also think that there's also power in that uniqueness as well. But even thinking about that, you know, the number of architects in the U.S. is around 115,000, you know, still very niche and very specialized, you know, profession. 
there's only, you know, less than 2% of that number are African-American architects, you know, so that is a really, really low number, right? And we're not, and we're seeing that reflected in our workplaces and the work that we do, Uh, and also other people of color. So for me, I think it's more of a long game advocacy effort where I can sit in my identity and, and advocate, but then also think about all the other people and identities that are not represented and how that affects the way that our built environment is actually, you know, created. I think that's kind of like my main passion for doing this work of equity, diversity, inclusion, and how that's integrated into practice people in the built environment. Yeah. So your organizations have been collaborating now for several years, not just locally in the Bay Area, but also nationally. You know, I I, I think it's sort of we'd, we'd be you know remiss to not bring up the events from 2019 and 2020 and how they heightened perhaps the you know collaboration that you guys have uh, already began. Has that enabled the collaboration to be even more prominent? Uh, Tell us sort of what has been the outcome of of all of those events on uh, what you guys are doing together. I think there's maybe um, a little less friction in kind of bringing people together to to do something. I think that everyone, it's become really front of mind. It's something to think about. I was reading something the other day that really said that part of how you can Part of operationalizing equity is about making it kind of everyday conversation, you know, and so it's not a kind of extra. And how and I certainly in our region talk a lot about this work we're doing isn't the side. It's not our side hustle. It's not this other thing to add on later. It's in the middle of everything. You know, I like to compare it to what we've done with accessibility and sustainability that that used to feel like an extra. Used to feel like, oh, God, let me add the ramp. Oh God, let me add the PV. Like it used to feel like a thing you had to do after you designed, you did the nice thing. And now we can't imagine doing designing anything without considering either of those things. And it's, that's where we need to get with racial and social equity, that it's not the extra thing. It's just in the lane. Sure. It's what we're doing. So there's, it's coming closer to being the lane, I guess is where I'm saying that all of that has made those issues less side hustle and more (laughs) in the lane. Yeah, maybe to add on to what Lisa was saying too, you know, I I know she and I both represent Gensler. I know we're speaking of our partnership here, but I think the way we look at it too is that we obviously don't want this to be exclusive either, right? I think we just take it on with the responsibility that we know that we're the largest design firm in the industry. So in many ways, trying to lead by this example, but it's by no means, you know, just a quote unquote Gensler and Noma partnership. It's with the hope that this is a true partnership of our entire other colleagues in other uh, companies to uh, really follow. And um, as I said, it's it's something where I think it's, we would say it's ingrained in the DNA of our firm, right? If you look at kind of with art, you know, in the very early on, he was always, he knew how important it was to be inclusive women. Sure. You, know, you look at our leadership with the CEOs, you know, Diane Hoskins also, African-American by background. But it's, uh, as you said, the events of the last few years have really, I think pointed out more the urgency. I think as um, Lisa said, it's always been there. Everyone's aware of it. But I think it's now we realize without uh, that urgency, there is no change. It's going to be slow. So how can we make this faster? How can we still make this done in a way that is that doesn't step on a lot of people along the way, right? But again, just making it something where 
we can really make this uh, vision real. Yeah. I would definitely agree with what was said. I think, you know, the work has been interesting post 2020. You know, we've been working on this initiative in organizations and design firms have, you know, started these, you know, pre 2020. And I think 2020 was really the catalyst for people to see it, like pulling the curtain back and and really seeing and hearing from people about their experiences and how that affects the way that they practice or affects, you know, the spaces that we live in, play in, work in. So I agree with Lisa that in that way, it's brought in a deeper level of awareness and people are more interested in learning more or listening. So that's very helpful because now people are coming to Noma and saying, oh, hey, I just found out about you, you know, in October of 2021. And then it's almost like a reintroduction for Noma and then other architecture firms that are pushing these initiatives to 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 hear from us about what we've already been doing. So we're like, oh, oh sure, you know, come on, come on in and and learn about this to cre- to move towards more equitable practice. I will also say that I think there's an importance in terms of metrics and reports or even, you know, level of communication about, you know, race race and ethnicity and cultural backgrounds. And I think a lot of the time we talk about it in terms of like men versus women or, you know, Asian people, uh, Middle Eastern people, Black people. But I really like to emphasize that there's an intersectionality at play there that really affects the way you move through space and the way that we are informed to do design. And I think part of that and part of NOMA is making sure that people are seen and they're represented and they have that voice, you know, because we don't want to forget about the people at the margins. We want to make sure that it's truly an inclusive feedback loop for our members. And How do you guys accomplish that? I think, as you were saying, Lisa, you know, with uh, with you know some of the ADA stuff, for instance, over the last couple of decades, you know, the actualization of that was somewhat evident, right? You need to build a ramp, for instance. You need to build a different type of door or something like that, right? Or a passageway. In this case, how do you accomplish that uh, for something like, you know, inclusivity and um, you know diversity? I'm going to give an example that I've been giving a lot, so how might be sick of hearing it. But this happens definitely in the UK and happens in the US where we have affordable housing. We have a mixed income housing project. And that's a great idea, right? Mixed income housing. Who, who doesn't like that? And then we say, but there are different entrances. And so that's a kind of real tangible way where why do we do that? Why are we saying that it's the same physical building, right? But somehow because one group is paying less, they deserve. And, you know, that that second entrance is often not as nice. It might be in the back. Might be, so that's the kind of way where kind of policy meets construction meets inequity, right? That it seemed equitable because it's one building in a great location, let's argue, right? But then no, because we're somehow stigmatizing one group of people to say that you don't come in the front door. So that's a kind of very actual way that... Yeah, very obvious Yeah, way of... Displaying that, yeah. I think a lot of it too is uh, we think a lot about process, you know, in terms of um, not really focusing, hopefully changing the process, right, to get a different outcome. You know, I think this industry, if you kind of think about the history of it, it's very much been built around kind of cult of personalities or the cult of an individual, you know, the black cape. And that in of itself is already a very exclusive kind of uh, thing, right? And 
So I think we think a lot about how do we nurture a condition or a, an environment where you can truly hear everybody's voice, you know, and especially from the design process to be able to have equal kind of standing when it comes to ideas and, and having that truly a diversity of voices there can lead to novel ideas. Right, because again, it's the same thing. If we have the same people at the table, you're going to inevitably lead to the same result. And it's basically what's kind of happened to it, that's kind of the situation we're in right now. That's why we're trying to kind of unwind or create some new uh, ways of doing things. Are there certain ways through which uh, you know you guys feel that you need to do extra work to kind of bring awareness to this? And I imagine the answer is yes. And I only ask that because usually when we speak with, you know, developers or, you know, the the end user of the of the physical space, you know, it seems to be very kind of process oriented. You know, well, here are, here's what I need to accomplish uh, from a strategic point of view. Here's what the, you know, city county is going to let me do, right? Here's the financial aspect of what we're trying to accomplish. It seems to me that, that those end up being kind of the top priorities. Is your job harder then? Because you then have to remind folks that, well, there's other aspects of this you also have to take into account. And do you feel like that is a challenge for you guys today? Again, I think ADA and, and sustainability are great examples that, that they all used to feel harder, right? And I think in terms of we're forming new pathways now. So if we take one small task of looking for consultants, any professional does this 12 times a week, they are building a team, need consultants. So what do you do? You call the 10 you've used before and so forth. And so when someone now says to you, huh, but do you have a, is there a minority owner here? Like, have you looked differently? That feels like extra work now, right? Because, well, it is extra. But if you imagine once you've made those relationships and once you've done some projects together, it's no longer extra work. So I guess, yeah, if you forge any new pathways, that's new work. But I think, again, our previous battles with women, LGBTQ, accessibility, like all this, all kind of human rights and civil rights we've done before, they all felt harder until it became second nature. But yes, right now, it's definitely another step. Right. And I think that is part of the work or like the good fight. You know what I mean? And I agree with Lisa. It's more of like, exercising a muscle, right? When you start in the gym and you're going to the gym, you're not automatically going to, you know, weight lift 300 pounds or whatever it is, but you kind of keep doing it. It's kind of those baby steps that keep moving forward. And, and I think it's interesting because we as architects kind of have a scope of work, but we're also, you know, a piece of a larger puzzle. Projects don't like start with us and they don't end with us, right? the client, the developer, the architect, the larger design team, the contractor. So even understanding that we're part of this system and how we can better advocate in those ways is part of kind of changing the culture and changing the narrative. On the user end side, I think it's about, you know, building trust within communities to kind of build that rapport before, you know, projects are even set in place or even educating communities about what is being talked about for certain land use or certain developments and kind of have that closer connectivity rather than just the design professional that comes in and, and does the, the the core, you know, traditional design work. And really talking overall to these entities about, you know, what is equitable development and what does that mean for public and private investments and the program and policies and things in that way. So I think it's more of kind of like building it up so everyone can kind of have a foundation and work 
with those entities as kind of like our core group of people. But I know that that is also a large task and effort. So definitely long game. Yeah, maybe if I may add maybe a little debate, I was thinking about the example of the ADA and sustainability. And if you kind of think about ADA was, you know, legislated, right? It was like something that became a mandate. You know, sustainability, I would argue that it's also similar, right? Because jurisdictions are demanding it came with a visibility with lead. So I think that's maybe a question here, right? I know, I think right now, obviously we are depending on the, the goodness of people to also do the right thing. And at some point, is there a need for legislating? Does that make sense, right? And or, you know, the, or is there a way to make a, a true ROI on it? Because that, I know that was a debate uh, with sustainable design in order for people to buy in, right? So I guess the, I just only think of it as a prompt, right? Because I think we are at this point, right? Where um, I would only speak probably personally, maybe a little bit for Lisa. I know it's, um, it's, it's an interesting inflection point right now where as Julia said, I think we have a lot of, there's a lot of people like approaching her right now, right? To build that awareness. But at some point, I think there's going to be a demand for change and a real a tan, a tangible outcomes. And this is where I would say it's, it'll be, I'm hopeful in the couple of years here that we will see that. But if it's still status quo, then I do wonder you know, if it leads to other things that we have to do as an industry or as a society. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point, and and I have to admit, I haven't I haven't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. I think when you have organizations or associations, you know, eventually they turn to some kind of you know public policy initiative as well. Julia, from what you're seeing over at Noma, you know, nationally and also locally, you know, is that something that the organization is considering, might consider, uh, even if it's like a soft approach, you know, kind of working with some you know jurisdictions? What is happening on that front? Yeah, I think we have designated people at the national level and some local levels that are working with local entities to kind of introduce that language so there is, you know, future development in that way. And I think that's also part of the work, architects doing work outside of what their core function is, to almost be advocates in that way and speaking from a humanitarian lens for the good of the built environment and the people that are within it. So that's definitely developments that have been ha- happening pre-2020, and that's part of the larger work. And I, I would, you know, echo the statement about, you know, accessibility. That is something that's under the Department of Justice. So ADA accessibility is something that we must be, you must comply to, and that's the floor, not the ceiling anymore, right? And it's because we are saying, hey, we think everyone should have equitable access to all spaces or the way that we use things, right? So in that same vein, communicating why it's important for us all to be respected as human beings, and then what kind of trickles down from that umbrella statement is what's really important to get across for everyone to say, hey, yes, that does make sense, right? And then once everyone has the consensus of that you know, overall statement, then say, okay, well, how does that manifest in the way that we want to design spaces? Yeah. One of the things that you guys are, you know, very fortunate is that you work in a region that is known for innovation and a lot of sort of tech companies I think have transformed the way 
physical spaces. I, I think we think of physical space when we think about, you know, office or mixed use or anything like that, right? Are there some examples, and you know, maybe you don't want to specifically call anybody out, but are there some examples of you know companies that are doing some really interesting and good things in this area that uh, perhaps you hope would be kind of exemplars for other parts of the country too, or maybe the world? I guess maybe it's not a company I can speak for, maybe uh, not the tech companies necessarily, but I'll speak for university. I know we're working with uh, UC Berkeley right now, and maybe this is an opportunity where you know, academia can also lead the way too. Um, I think they, uh, the conversations that we've had at the project that we're working on there, it goes very much to pro uh, process thinking, different ways of thinking, really taking the time to pull in uh, voices that you would normally not think of. And I think that investment of time is certainly um, enriching the dialogue. It's challenging the designers to see uh, the design in ways that we obviously would not uh, did not see it ourselves, right? And so I think it would be interesting to, as that translates to private industry because perhaps time is of the essence, and it's a little time is a little different with academia. But um, the hope is that something like that I could see and again a lot of learnings from uh, what we're doing um, at Berkeley could then be something that gets kind of like. It just states there and it becomes something that can be applied to other work. You know, thinking about interdisciplinary design practices really push the envelope because they're thinking holistically about how design impacts people overall. So I'm thinking of a few, but I probably <laughs> won't name drop. But then if you're thinking about, you know, the built environment as a whole, when you're thinking about projects, um, a lot of the time, you know, we have this parcel of land and we're doing this project. And sometimes the way people design is that it doesn't really respond to the surrounding context or the neighborhood. And I think being, you know, really cognizant of how, you know, something is dropped in a place is really important. And a lot of projects now moving forward, I've seen in urban environments is part of the program or part of what is included within design briefs of, of what is needed is some sort of, you know, public space or on the ground level, maybe it's a space that opens up to the public. So it's public space on the ground floor, maybe it's a cafe, maybe it's a, you know, kind of like third space, if you will. And that's something that I've seen more tech companies do to where it's not walls of privatized space in an urban environment where you're kind of breaking up the streetscape or the street experience to where you can engage or with the public. Are there any with your collaboration, are there any specific, you know, tasks and goals that your two entities have have set as kind of a path to to accomplish? What does that look like, and what is what is the timing around that? I was going to maybe go back to um, one one specific task would be having more black professionals. So I think there are kind of two two prong attacks on that. One is you know how are more professionals coming into firms, so whatever firms they are, and so. Obviously, against there, we have clear interest in Black professionals joining our firm, but there's a larger interest in just how are we nurturing Black professional community. And then I think, so that's one part of our partnership, but I think the other part is kind of connection with NOMAS and how we're working with students, with HBCUs, so historically Black colleges and universities. And so how are we nurturing the next generation? I think it's important to for us to remember 
that's a huge part of it. Like how are we building the pipeline, but not to the detriment of our current existing black professionals. I think those two pieces of the puzzle of how are we fostering a community for current professionals and how are we nurturing the next generations? And that's absolutely work that we're doing together in a number of different ways. Yeah, and I would piggyback off of what Lisa is saying. I think even overall, you know, Gensler being a part of the president's circle and kind of being a part of that initiative to push NOMA Nationals initiatives is very much helpful. So we do have Project Pipeline Summer Camp, which is, you know, targeting middle school and high school students to get interested in architecture and learn a little bit more. They actually have a specific project and a site that they work with and they create create diagrams and models and things like that. And Gensler has been very influential in, you know, providing volunteers for that camp every year, you know, as well as connecting to the NOMAS chapters, which is at the university level, um, and making sure that we're connecting in that point and then recent graduates and and reaching back to HBCUs, because I believe that 70% the Black architects in the NOMA professional chapters and in the industry come from HBCUs. So we want to make sure that we are, you know, that connect that connection to them. And then also as a program that NOMA National is pushing this year is our 50 by 50 challenge, which is trying to get 50 licensed architects by our 50th anniversary in October of this year. So that's kind of like turning up the heat on, you know, the aggressive um, push towards more people of color in the design industry. And then also our DEI challenge, which is the diversity, equity, inclusion challenge, which is really a localized version of, you know, the president's circle initiative to have other firms more committed to the cause and kind of signing on a dotted line. Yeah, one thing um, I was going to touch on something that Julia brought up earlier that what we've done is I, I love what she said earlier that, you know, data is really important. And, you know, I think broadly speaking, I think everybody would say, you know, we want our practices to be a reflection of the communities we work in. But at the same time, you know, both Lisa and I have also been huge champions of we need the data, right? We need to see what the reflection in the mirror tells us. And so, you know, again, um, as a step of trying to lead by example, you know, we did as a firm finally publish our, um, our racial profile and what our diversity, uh, how diverse we are or not, right? So again, then we, that is almost like the starting point, right? Because how, how can you mark progress or how do you know what to focus on if you don't have that? So, um, that's that's always a kind of the the rude awakening perhaps that you see the numbers and then you see what's ahead and so from there then we can chart maybe some um, market metrics from there as to your original question Vlad right in terms of just saying okay then you know in the course of a year or two right how do we want to increase the numbers and what should it look like when we re or rerun this uh, audit. Julia, this is maybe a question best suited for you, but does NOMA organize some kind of, you know, collaborative efforts with other parts of the industry, whether it's in, you know, engineering or construction or, you know, brokerage that's sort of related industry, obviously, um, are, are there any initiatives like that as well? Formally, we have partnerships with AIA, which, Amer- which is American Institute of Architects, as well as NCARB which is the entity for testing and licensure um, for architects, as well as USGBC. So those are current, you know, national partnerships that we work through 
to kind of have that exchange of information and understanding where we are. I agree, you know, we can't manage what we can't measure. And that's a quote, I think Kimberly Dowdell said a lot during her presidency, but, you know, we want to make sure that we are understanding what the existing conditions are or where we need to start and where we want to be. So in that way, NCARB has, you know, created reports as well, demographic breakdown of people that are testing um, and the breakdown of years of people testing, how long that takes and passing rates and things of that nature. So they have worked with um, NOMA and having a comprehensive understanding of what that looks like so we can better respond. And then USG and AIA's partnership has been a long time, you know, MOU to make sure that there is a mutual understanding between us as well as USGBC. And there's always room to grow and have more, you know, formalized partnerships. I'd love to kind of end on a positive note. And uh, obviously what you guys do is extremely positive, but just from a kind of point of view of, you know, hope behind your you know effort, what have you guys seen over the last, you know, couple of years and in your work together that's, you know, given you hope for the initiatives that you guys are trying to make happen here? I do honestly believe in kind of our capacity to change. I deeply believe in our individual capacity to learn and change. Like, I think I couldn't get up in the morning if I didn't. So I deeply believe that. And so why do I think, why do I feel positive beyond the, that part? I think because you can't, I've, I've never known another moment in my life when, whether I'm on Instagram or, or Hulu or Netflix, I don't have a million ways to learn about the Black experience or learn about the Asian, like there's so many ways to learn. We have made this just the air we breathe. We've made talking about who we are and justice and equity. And so I know that people, not everyone's reading it, but have to trip over it. So I think that's huge. And so I think I also am hopeful that people younger than me for, I don't know, there are two generations after, like for me, they're kind of over this, right? That we're having angst about this, but like younger people are like, what, why are you all talking about this? So, you know, I think the future is, multicolored and just sort of open and and we can't stop that what gives me hope is that you know i I just think about last year and on the heels of george floyd's death we had a um we pulled together the office and um and you know i think it was that moment that when we were all speaking as people that that was when i realized there's probably hope you know that you're able to it's no longer something that's in your head, but it's something that's in your heart, right? And I always think that real change comes when people truly believe it. And you only believe it if it's in your heart. You don't really believe things when it's in your head. So I think that's what probably ultimately gives me hope. Admittedly, you know, maybe I'm the glass half empty half of um, Lisa, but you know, I think there are there there are always speed bumps along the way, right? I mean, I you know January six, I mean, I, I cried. That was the antithesis of everything that happened the previous summer, right? And so, I don't want to speak with kind of naive hope, if you know what I mean. I, I I truly believe in this. I sincerely hope it can happen in my lifetime. But I would say personally, if we can just get everything on the right track. And if it is indeed that next generation is like so over it, then great. Yes, to everything that was just said. I 
was writing notes because <laughs> I want to keep my thoughts. So I'll, you know, kind of read my notes. I think we're thawing right now. That's kind of like my main thought, you know, since, you know, the summer of 2020. Yeah, we talk about, you know, the murder of George Floyd, but then that same week, there was also the Amy Cooper incident. And then there was also Ahmaud Arbery who passed away um, while running. Um, he was murdered. So I think it was kind of accumulation of seeing a lot of violence and questioning, like, where is the humanity? And I, and I, that's why, like, that what housing, I think people started to think about what it is to be a human and the empathy behind that. Although these things have been happening for ages, you know, years, centuries, it, it was kind of on display in this mo- like focused, you know, way in terms of content that made people really kind of see it resonated with people. And I would also like to mention, you know, we are designers, but you know, after we, you know, quote unquote clock out, or like once we leave the office, we're still, you know, other people, you know, none of us are immune to any kind of hate crimes or injustices or prejudices. So even kind of thinking in that way helps us, you know, have a greater conversation, even if it's uncomfortable. Yes, we do have a lot of information, you know, we're in the accessibility age and everyone can look things up and everyone can educate themselves where it doesn't require, you know, a formal education. Now there's more free information everywhere to share. So I think there's people that are, you know, at the 101 level and they're starting to learn. And then there's more people who are at the 201 or the 401 level that are, are ready to push forward or, or form the organizations or the initiatives. So um, I'm very much hopeful. I think we're just getting everyone up to speed. Um, And I think seeing a lot of people in senior leadership across design firms and companies really acknowledging what is happening and having the buy-in and really helping other people see that it's okay to talk about is kind of where I'm seeing the change. So I think that that is very helpful and I'm optimistic that it'll continue in that way. And we'll see that manifest in in programs in companies. Great. Great. Tell me where can people from the industry find out more about what you guys are doing and how can they get involved? You can find us at Noma National. You can find us at noma.net. If you want to get engaged with us locally in the San Francisco Bay area, you can find us at sfnoma.net. You can also follow us on Instagram, which is sf underscore noma. Um, And let us know if you're interested in partnerships or if you're interested in being a member, as well as volunteerism. Project Pipeline is our main signature architecture camp for youth. And let us know if you're interested in joining a NOMAS chapter as well, and we'll get you started. You can find out about us at Gensler.com, where you can find our diversity report, which released about a month ago, which talks about our metrics. You can find our document on our five strategies to fight racism, which talks about our engagement with NOMA and other organizations. You can also find our careers page for professionals, our internships page. And then under our research tab, you can find about our, soon you'll find our newest research institute, which is the equity in the built environment. And there'll be lots of information coming out in a few weeks. So that's us. Excellent. Well, Lisa, Julia, and Hal, thank you so much for sharing your personal stories. This has been truly remarkable. And um, what, what you know, you guys are doing in the industry is also uh, very commendable. And I 
wish you guys the best. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Vlad. Thanks for the time.